Well, I want to draw attention to a couple things that we have sang and, and confessed so far today. Um, in Joyful, Joyful, the song we started with, we, one of the lines says, Wellspring of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest. Wellspring of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest. And then we, we sang, we cried out in that last song, let us find our rest in Thee. And then similarly, though we didn't use the word rest, we confessed. We, in our confession today, what is our only comfort in life and death? We talked about comfort. And this is uh, from a confession, Heidelberg Catechism, that's 500 years old. And it asks, even back then, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it's a wonderful question, because it's not just about what we think or believe in our heads, but where we find ultimate rest and comfort, peace, hope, joy, satisfaction, all of these things that we're all seeking after. In many different ways, all throughout the day, our hearts are running this way and that way, looking for something to rest in, to find comfort in. What, what's going to get us through another day? What can we hold on to to give us some hope, to keep us going? And that's basically the question of Ecclesiastes, right? What can we find comfort in? What can we hold on to? Where can joy and satisfaction be found? What is the key to the meaning of life? in any way, brings us some sort of satisfaction. Now, it's helpful to understand from the get-go, we're a few sermons into this, but it's helpful to remind ourselves how Ecclesiastes goes about answering that, because it takes kind of a different approach, or it puts emphasis a little bit more um, in different places than other biblical books, right? And maybe some of you, uh, I, I know some of you have found this greatly comforting, like that's true to life. Life is frustrating and seems meaningless and wearisome. And perhaps some of you are like, man, this is really dark and depressing. I don't know what to do with this. But here's the thing. Here's what Ecclesiastes is doing. Here's how Ecclesiastes is going about answering this question, what is our only comfort in life and death? And perhaps it is uh, to use an analogy or to use one of the images that Jesus gives us in, in one of his parables, all of our attempts to find comfort apart from our Creator God, all of our attempts to build a satisfying and significant and meaningful life, to trust in something in ourselves, to trust in something out there, they are all like building houses on sand. And the rain will come and the Waves will crash and the winds will blow and all of these houses will fall down and, and prove to not be sufficient for that task. And Ecclesiastes is showing us this ultimately not to leave us in that spot of just despair and, and giving up and becoming apathetic, 
but so that we might turn and find a more stable foundation for our hope. So that we might find a foundation of stone that will not only be secure and stable throughout the storms of this life, but also will bring us joy and satisfaction as well. And, and we need to see all of these, these, that these houses are built on sand. Because otherwise we will just, and this is how we live much of the time, we just jump from one thing that we think will satisfy us to another and, and over and over and over again. Or we always think that just around this corner, that this thing will be it. Or this change in our life or schedules or jobs will be it. And if this is the totality of our life, we never come face to face with our need for God. But God is what we need most. And this is what Ecclesiastes and the rest of Scripture is showing us. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me. So it's not just a, oh, salvation, done. Now I just live the same and nothing changes in my life. No, he also, because he has paid for my sins and set me free, he is, he is watching over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. So in both our sin and our suffering, in both being let down by ourselves and what's in our own hearts and being let down by everyone else in the world out there, we are driven and, and God would drive us and is drawing us to himself to find him to be sufficient, to find him to be good, to find him to be faithful, to find him to be a better foundation for our lives. Now, in this series so far, um, just because of the nature of Ecclesiastes, we've done a lot of the kind of deconstructing of tearing down, exposing the lies of all of these houses built on sand. But today, we're going to do some building up, some constructing, and consider how finding comfort in God radically changes our lives and, and gives us the joy and satisfaction and rest that we long for. We're going to cover a little bit longer of a section today, but we're really going to hone in on and focus on three verses, um, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Um, they're, they're a section that's kind of like a refrain in the book of Ecclesiastes. They occur six times. We've already covered a couple, uh, but we haven't had much time to really dig into what they are saying. So we're going to do that today. But we're going to start at verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. And uh, before we get to that section, the author is going to give us three further for reflections on the vanity of life. Three further houses built on sand. And we'll cover these briefly and then spend most of our time starting at verse 18. So verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. 
but this is gain for land in every way, a king cult committed to cultivated fields. So here's the big idea. If you are pinning your hopes and satisfaction on a completely just society, you will be frustrated and unsatisfied. If you are pinning your hopes on a completely just society, you will be frustrated and unsatisfied. Now, I hope it is obvious that we should care about justice. God's people should care about what is just and true and right, and to seek those things, to seek to do what is just. But in our pressing for justice, we also need to consider what is frankly admitted here, what is frankly said. If you see oppression and violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. This is perhaps one of the hardest messages for those committed to justice, as we all should be, um, to grasp. In many ways, the Bible trains us to expect evil and injustice in this world, including in our own hearts. And what this means is that we should be careful where we place our hopes. We shouldn't place our hopes for complete justice in mankind, whether in, in efforts, uh, programs, techniques, systems, educational efforts, the political system, finances, whatever means we go about trying to bring complete justice in the world, and, and there is good to be done in all those things, and Christians should be a part of all those things, but none of these things can cure the ultimate root of the problem, which is sinful human hearts. So again, we should not become apathetic towards injustice if we know and love God and who He is and His character and His glory, and that all men are and women are created in the image of God. We are to seek justice. But ultimately, we're always going to come back to the place of having to trust in God, cry out to God, and long for what God can only bring. A second reflection on the vanity of life, starting in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the big idea here, if you are pinning your hopes uh, on financial freedom and power and opportunities, you will be frustrated and unsatisfied, right? What, what we find here is something that uh, we find throughout the Bible. Jesus says it's impossible to love God and money, that, at, that you can't have two masters. You, ultimately, you can't serve two things because at some point, uh, one of them is going to require you to, um, to do something that the other one, and, and it'll cause you to despise the other one. It'll get in the way of the other one. Paul similarly tells us that uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it kind of gives us a, a moral, ethical understanding of the love of money. It's not right. Ecclesiastes takes a little bit different route by pressing into the human longing for satisfaction and joy, which are good. Our longing for satisfaction and joy are good. But Ecclesiastes lets us know that money and wealth and everything you can get from money and wealth is not an end in itself. 
It doesn't give us what we ultimately long for. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. In other words, um, having everything you need, always being full, not just hunger-wise, but always apparently having everything you think you need doesn't bring rest. We were made for more than consumption, made for more than just filling up all of our appetites and cravings and desires all the time. And all the marketing companies in the world are working overtime to make you believe that that's not the case. To make you believe that if you just get this product or go on this vacation or have this sort of lifestyle, you will finally find contentment and joy. And they lie. It doesn't mean those things are bad in and of themselves, but they can't offer what they tend to promise. We've covered a lot of these themes before, so we're kind of moving through this part quickly. Third reflection on the vanity of life, starting in verse 13. There was a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So the big idea here is about control. If you are pinning your hopes on controlling the course of your life, having this grand plan laid out of your life, and that is ultimately where your hope lies, you will be frustrated and unsatisfied. Um, you can think about the, the example here. This man hoarded his riches. He was, he was an example of somebody who loves their money. Uh, but the point isn't really that they're unsatisfied with their riches, but that this man's riches weren't ever his in the first place. He didn't ever have control over them. And perhaps he thought he had this plan for his life. He was going to share it with his son and his family. Um, he had this grand plan, but then his riches are all gone. He didn't really have control over the course of his life. And so he lives out his days in vexation and sickness and anger. And you can ask, you know, why is he, why is he like this? Well, because he still loves money. He lost everything, but he still is holding on to everything that he doesn't have. So the love of money is not limited to those who have a bunch of money. Everyone can have this love of money, whether you have money or don't. So let's kind of take in these three snapshots and also everything we've seen so far in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's step back and consider what we do. And we've answered this in various ways, but... Again, what do we do when we discover that life is filled with injustices that we can't ultimately just fix? That money and wealth and everything that wealth brings doesn't satisfy? That we aren't really in control of our lives? We've looked at toil. We've looked at living wisely, living with wisdom, We've looked at giving ourselves to every desire and every pleasure, seeking to satisfy our, ourselves, working hard and hardly working. Everything comes up a vanity. So what do we do? 
What we are prone to do, what our world helps us do in many ways, is to sink into endless distractions and diversions and pleasures so that we never have to lift our heads above reality. The, the, the world and our hearts provide a million ways to stay busy and distracted so that we never have to face the reality that life is filled with frustration and seeming meaninglessness. We're all on antidepressants of some form or another. And really, this is nothing new. Um, a theologian, this is kind of surprises me, but a theologian writing in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal, he said, as men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them so as to become happy. And they didn't have social media. So what do we do? Is there a, is there a better alternative than to uh, just numb ourselves? Well, the next verses are a ray of light that point us in a better direction and a direction that all of Scripture points us in. Um, so we're going to read, starting at 18. I'm going to read all the way through 6, 9, chapter 6, verse 9. But like I said, we're going to camp out on 18 through 20 here. So if you have your Bibles, Bible app, I encourage you to keep it open here. We're going we're gonna to really dive into this and consider what it says. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his law and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Going on to chapter 6, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. So this is kind of the contrast to what we just read. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, so in many ways this is a successful man, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, not have the ability to enjoy good, do not all go to the one place. And a few more verses. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So you can, you can grasp what the big idea here, and it connects to what, we, what I said at the beginning and what we've sung in our songs and confession. Satisfaction, joy, rest, Right? Throughout there, that's the repeated refrain. 
So what can we say about this? Notice a few things, and we're going to mainly be in 18 through 20 here. Chapter 5, 18 through 20. When the author begins and he says, I have seen what is, I have seen to be, what I have seen to be good and fitting. Do not think that it's, it's tempting to read that and think, well, this is just kind of a resigned, well, this is kind of the best you can hope for. Um, this is just okay. No, that, that's not how this is. Um, that's not what he's saying. The word used for good here is the word used repeatedly in Genesis 1 when God says his creation is, is good. This is good, uh, right, beautiful, in order, pleasant, desirable. This is truly good. The word for fitting, similarly, is, is um, beautiful, desirable, right, appropriate. So whatever the author is about to tell us is good and fitting, is truly good, beautiful, desirable in a deep and true way. And so what is this thing? Well, repeated a few times there in those verses, it is enjoy, enjoying one's toil, enjoyment in one's toil, and accepting one's lot. Enjoyment in one's toil and accepting one's lot. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, this should kind of surprise you. Because back in chapter 4, the author just, just argued and, and showed by his experience that toil is frustrating and meaningless and a vanity. And then before that, pretty much everything else we seek after in life is vanity and meaningless. But here he speaks of finding enjoyment in all the toil with which we toil under the sun. So apparently there is a kind of toiling and living and endeavoring that only leads to frustration and emptiness. But there is a different way of, go, of going about life, a different way of living that actually leads to joy in all of it, in everything we do. And I think the key to understanding this is verse 19. So if you have your Bibles again, look at verse 19. To whom God has given Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So not only are the things we have in our life the gift of God, but the very ability, power to enjoy them, to find any amount of joy in them is a gift of God as well. Here's the thing, if we seek after the things of life, work, wealth, leisure, family, even things like wisdom and, and love and morality and justice as ends in themselves, as able to provide the meaning and purpose and satisfaction we want in life, then they will lead to vain frustration and dissatisfaction. That, that much has been clear in Ecclesiastes so far. However, if we receive the things of life and our particular lot in life as a gift from God, while trusting the mysteries and the difficulties to God, we can live with joy and satisfaction in all of our life. So this joy is a byproduct of receiving life as a gift from God. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, a couple things. First off, to be very clear, this joy and satisfaction are found in a life centered around God. 
it, it might be tempting to read uh, verse 18. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil. Um, it might be tempting to read that and think that what matters most is that I find joy and uh, if God can help me out in that, great, but that's not really all that important. It, it may seem like a call for hedonism, for seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake, you know, essentially just saying life is hard, there's no getting around it, so just find all the pleasure you can, get all the pleasure you can, try to ignore the pain, and that's really the best you can hope for. Maybe God can help you out in that. But that's not the message, that's not what is being said here, that's not the message of Ecclesiastes or of Scripture. Uh, for Ron, uh, as I've said before, remember, all of Ecclesiastes should be uh, read as if there was an asterisk after every word, essentially, after every sentence, with a little note at the bottom that says, yes, 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 but keep reading all the way to the end. Keep reading to the end. Because at the end, the author says, the end of the matter, all right, so here, summon it up, all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Then, for God will bring every deed into judgment where with every secret thing, whether good or, good or evil. Those are the last two, two verses of the book. So, whatever enjoyment in life is being encouraged here, and in this refrain that we find throughout Ecclesiastes, is necessarily an enjoyment connected to the fear of and obedience to God. Right? This is not enjoyment and joy and at, at just whatever, how, through whatever means, you go out and you figure it out. This is an enjoyment and contentment and satisfaction lived out before God. We see something similar in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, what is the way to having all of our needs met and finding joy and satisfaction in life? Is it to spend all of our energy and all of our days making sure that every need is met and that we are getting the life we want? No. The way to rejoice in our toil and accept our lot in life is to seek first the kingdom of God, the things of God, God himself, and trust him with the, well, with the rest. Um, one commentator, David Gibson, puts it like this. He says, The preacher tells us that God has to give us enjoyment, or the thing itself, phone, sex, house, car, will leave us unsatisfied. And the way God gives us enjoyment in his gifts is by giving us perspective on ourselves. When we know that the gift is not meant to be a stepping stone to greater things, when we realize we are not meant to rule the world or master our destiny or achieve ultimate gain through our careers, then we discover that enjoyment or joy is itself the reward that we may expect from life and all our effort expended in living it. Now, all of this may bring up a, yes, fair enough, but you speak of accepting one's lot in life and rejoicing in that, but you don't know my life. 
you don't know how difficult and painful my life is. You don't know the, the injustices, the questions, the mysteries that are a part of my life. How am I accepted? How am I supposed to just accept my lot in life and be satisfied with that? Well, if anything, it should be clear that the author of Ecclesiastes is not naive about any of that. He seems to kind of expect that everyone would feel that way. And so part of what this means, part of what it means to receive life as a gift from God, isn't to say, well, man, this is exactly the life I would have chosen. Isn't to, to love everything that comes our way, but it is to trust God with all the things that we don't understand, with all the things that don't make sense, with all of the, the pains and difficulties and injustices. Let me read the last three verses here and then kind of unpack that a little bit more. So chapter 6, verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Um, so kind of, a, uh, there's, there's a lot in there, we don't have time to cover everything, but in essence, this is a confession of God's providence. Uh, to name something is to exercise authority over it, just as in Genesis, in Genesis when um, Adam and Eve are given to, to name, naming the animals. And so God exercises authority over all that has come and all that will come. Likewise, we are told repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes that every deed, everything done in this life, whether good or evil, will come under the just and perfect judgment of God. And so, no injustice, no evil, no mystery, no questions, nothing that doesn't, all that seems vanity and meaningless in this life, none of it is outside of God's providence, just operating rogue out there, completely chaotically apart from God, and all of it will come before His throne, which means that to accept your lot in life is not about resigning yourself just giving up all hope, lowering your expectations that life is just unfair and oppressive and unjust. Rather, it is about redirecting our expectations and desires and longings and hopes. It means that we trust God that, there, that life actually does make sense and will make sense in the end, though we are not given to know all of that now. It is about trusting God that our desires and longings and hopes are good. The desire to find joy and satisfaction is good, even though nothing seems to satisfy it right now. Perhaps an appropriate term for this is contented dependence. A, a state of being where we learn to be dependent on God and learn to be okay with that, rather than trying to get out from under that. 
We don't have all the answers. As we considered a few weeks ago, God hasn't come and just like sat us down and given us a lecture, and He's like, here's, here's how everything works. So now you don't need me anymore because I just explained everything to you. Rather, God has given him, us Himself, and God has given us to know that He loves us, that He has all the answers, that He is with us, and that He calls us to trust Him and to wait on Him. And we have been promised that in the end, all will make sense, God will be vindicated, and all those who belong to Him. And it is in this sort of expecting, longing position of contented dependence that we can accept our lot and rejoice in our toil, knowing that God will work out all things for our good and His glory in the end. I've read part of this this quote before, but I find it really helpful. The Christian attitude, then, is one of faith and confidence. The Christian says, I know that all these things must play their part in God's plan. I long to know what the plan is and to see it as a whole, beginning to end, and I shall always go on trying to see it. But in the meantime, I will live my life one day at a time, believing that in the common round of life, I am doing the will of God. I will be content with what God gives me and take my life from the hand of God. Take up the common things of life and find your joy in the service of God there. So how are you doing with this? How is this, how is this playing out in your life? How are you doing with contented dependence, with contentment? Accepting your lot in life and seeking to live faithfully and joyfully where you are. For some of you, such a question may seem ridiculous even to ask. Again, some of you are dealing with a lot, a lot of heavy, weighty, painful stuff. And so we need to remember and know this, that contentment with what God brings doesn't mean you don't try to get out of difficult situations that you just love being in difficult situations, but it does mean that you don't stake your joy and contentment on getting out of those situations, that you don't wait to live your life and to live with joy before God until all the sky's clear and everything makes sense. This is where God has you today. Tomorrow may get better. Tomorrow may continue the same. Tomorrow may get worse. But right now we are here And we have opportunities to trust God, to rejoice in God and give thanks to God. There are things still to give thanks for and to love others. God isn't calling us to love everything that comes into our life, but He is calling us to trust Him that He will use it for good, that nothing will be meaningless in the end. Because of that, in this position of contented dependence. We can walk faithfully, even joyfully, through whatever He brings. Again, how are you doing with contentment? Do you know 
that if you are in Christ, you don't have to prove or justify your existence anymore. That's where a lot of our discontent goes, is trying to prove our existence, prove our identity and our worth. You are secure. Your identity and worth are set. You are loved. Do you know that in Christ, if you are in Christ, you don't have to run around frantically this way and that way trying to find something that's going to satisfy you? You already know it won't, and you already have what does. And then if you are in Christ, do you know that all of the injustices and oppression and mysteries and questions of life have a satisfying answer, even if you can't see it right now? And so we can wrestle and struggle and try to understand the meaning of things, but ultimately we don't need to be paralyzed by these things. It's not on us to figure it all out. So don't forget There is only one comfort in life and death, and that is Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. Keep on clinging to Him. Keep on running back to Him. When your heart wanders this way and that way, come back, and He is ready to receive you. He will never turn you away or let you down. Let's pray.